Hi, I'm Dr. Ellen, the Midlife Whisperer, and I hear you and I've got you. Think of me as the one-stop shop for all your midlife needs. I'm a psychologist, registered dietitian, nutritionist, board-certified health and wellness coach, and mindful self-compassion teacher. I'm also an author and podcast host with over 30 years of experience empowering midlife women. Hey, everybody, Dr. Ellen here, the Midlife Whisperer. Welcome. We have an awesome show planned for you today. If you are a new listener, I'm so thrilled to have you here. And if you're returning, thanks for listening again. We have listeners all over the world. And today we are actually going to be talking about things happening all over the world, transforming ourselves, transforming the world. I know we have people from Australia, from the UK, from Spain, from Japan, from Russia, from Ukraine. And it's just so lovely to meet all you amazing midlifers here and help you rock your midlife. So I have a question for you. Are you feeling stuck? Because this is something that I hear from midlife women all the time. And are you wondering how you can change your life and have a bigger impact on the world? Well, today's show is going to help you step outside your comfort zone and transform the world. I'm talking with two absolutely incredible women, digital nomad Michelle Fishburn, who traveled all over the United States interviewing people about what they lost and found during the COVID-19 pandemic. And then I will be talking with another incredible woman, humanitarian Jane Olson, about her remarkable and courageous journeys to countries broken by violence and war. And she's been all over the place, and I can't wait to dig in with her and just get a sense of how she was brave enough, both of these women, so incredibly brave. And I know that they're going to inspire you too to get unstuck, step outside your comfort zone and live life to the fullest. You know, I think all of us have had to step outside our comfort zones over the last three years. I think we're all looking back and going, my gosh, how much have you changed over the last three years? I know I have. I know when the pandemic hit, I was in a very, very different place. I was living in a same state, but very different. I was living in Burlington, Vermont, and I was trying to break up with somebody and go out on my own. And now I am a living kind of way out in the country on this amazing romantic island with an incredible man. I got engaged during the pandemic, and I also went through breast cancer, which was crazy. Um, So I've changed a lot, and most of us have transformed, right? Uh, Since 2020, the COVID-19 pandemic caused so much uncertainty, disrupted our lives, forced most of us to spend a lot of time alone thinking about who am I? I mean, you have to spend all the time alone. You just like, you can't lean into your old ways of being. You really have to figure out who am I and what am I doing here? And then for a lot of other midlife women, they were like enjoying being alone or empty nest. And all of a sudden the kids came back and disrupted things. And that really caused a lot of disruption. And then, you know, many of us started working remotely. Other people experienced job loss and financial hardship. And I think all of us were really forced to change how we interact socially, take a look at what things we took for granted, and also really look at the existing inequalities and systemic issues that need to be changed. So it's been a powerful time where I think almost everybody feels like on the planet transformed in some ways, and it really turned our lives upside down and forced us to step outside our comfort zones and do things in a new way, woke a lot of us up, including my first guest, Michelle Fishburne. And Michelle and I got connected on Facebook. If you're not following her on Facebook, she is the, um, is it the domestic nomad, Michelle? The happy nomad. The happy nomad. I think it was Instagram, Ellen. Yes. It was Instagram, right. The happy nomad. So we met on Instagram and this woman is like definitely traveling the country in an RV is on my bucket list. Um, My man, Ken and I went to the world's largest RV show back in September and, you know, got RVs that were ridiculous with like fireplaces. I mean, you can deck it out. It's amazing what you can get, but that's kind of been a dream of just to get a smaller, you know, like what you're like doing the truck trunk, the truck camper kind of thing. And so I've been following her and like, oh, wow, she is like so cool. But during the 2020 COVID spring, she lost her job and could not find another, notwithstanding months of trying. At the end of July 2020, when the lease on her post-divorce house was up and her youngest was off to college, Michelle found herself without a house, a spouse, 
a job or kids to take care of. Talk about a shakeup. So that is what she did not have. But what she did have was a 2006 motorhome, Curiosity and Experience RVing all over the country. So she combined all of these into a cross-country project, interviewing people about their lives during the pandemic. She RVed 12,000 miles and interviewed hundreds of people. And now she's got a book, which is just about to come out. Who are we now? Stories of what Americans lost and found during the COVID-19 pandemic. I know she's got a wealth of wisdom and enthusiasm to share with you as well as this like midlife mojo of like, yeah, I'm going to leave it all. And she's actually interviewing. I can see she's in her RV. She's living in a tiny house on wheels. Welcome to Rock Your Midlife, Michelle. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Ellen. It's been so much fun to watch you on Instagram over the last couple of years. And, you know, as you were mentioning, everybody has a story, the highs and the lows and the sideways and the uncertainty. It has been breathtaking. Yeah, that's a really nice thing. I think social media has a dark side, right? But it's got this other side where we are able to connect and see people. And I love you included all of these amazing midlife women who are like rocking it. Like you're like up on top of your friggin' RV dancing. I'm, I'm, gosh, I'm really curious who, who shoots those. So I just have a tripod um, and I put the, the, you know, the iPhone on the tripod and I just hit play and I climb up a ladder on the back of my motorhome and I stand up there and I, and I dance. <laughs> and, and are you, are you having as much fun as you look like you're having? Some days, yes. And some days, no, you know, that's the, that's the way life goes, right? Um, one of the things I've learned is that um, there'll be peaks and troughs and, when you are at a peak, you, you ride it like you, you've got, you're on this great wave, right? You just ride that peak and you, and you recognize that you're on that peak because there's going to be a trough. And when you hit that trough, it's nice to remember that there will be another peak and how it felt on the prior peak. So yes, some days I'm doing great and some days I'm not. Yeah, that, that definitely is true. And I think midlife, I always talk about it being a roller coaster. And I think the pandemic too was a roller coaster of moments of up. I mean, I remember that May when everyone was getting the vaccinations and we were like, it's over, it's all good. Yeah. And then it was back to lockdown and it's been crazy, but you've been shining throughout. So tell us a little bit about your very unusual 2020. How, how did it happen? And I'd love to know for listeners, because I know a lot of women are like, yeah, I want to rock my midlife. How did you get through all of the ups and downs of 2020? Because you didn't just have the pandemic, you had a lot more. Yeah, I had a lot more. So January 1st, 2020, I'd just gotten back from a vacation in Grand Cayman with my family. And I was nice and tan and I was happy and I was loving my job being a national events and partnership and PR director for a nonprofit. And I remember telling people over Christmas how fortunate I was that my life was just humming along. And then on January 17th, an unknown virus attacked my eighth cranial nerve and took out my vestibular system, uh, which means my balance and my hearing oh my in my right ear. And so I was walking with a walker and well, when I could walk, I mean, that took about a week, I guess, or maybe several days, but it took a while to be able to walk. Um, and, um, and so that was the first thing. And then COVID came and I got laid off and I thought, I went to UVA law school. I was an international trade attorney for a decade. I, I'll be fine. You know, I've got so many skills and I'm smart and I can do this and people will see my value. Well, that didn't work out. Um, 86 customized cover letters later, just like you said, nobody wanted me by the middle of July. Yeah. I even offered my services for free and people wouldn't take me. Literally, I was like, let me just intern for you. Um, I was 57. They're like, no, thank you. Um, so um, so I had this moment of sometimes I think in life and probably Jane can relate to this too, that the, some of the big decisions you have to make um, come down to something very specific, a very specific decision you have to make. I had to decide where to tell the movers to put my stuff <laughs> when the lease was up on July 31st. And I thought, well, it doesn't make any sense to get an apartment or rent a place because I have no idea where I'll have to go to get a job, right? So I thought, okay, well, I have my 2006 motorhome. I homeschooled my children. 
I rode schooled them in my motor home once for 10 months when they were four and seven and once for four months when they were seven and nine. So like driving around the United States in my motor home and living in it, it's no big deal for me. I know how to do that. And I thought, okay, I'll move into the motor home. And then I thought, I'll just consult my way to the next job. And then I realized that I would wake up every morning terrified. So action is the antidote to fear. I just got in the motorhome. I decided I'd do a project like Humans of New York, but call it Americans of the Pandemic, which then became who we are now. And I just took off and I interviewed whoever I could find. Um, that was a little hard when everybody was alone in their homes and nobody was out on the streets, which is why there's an empty Los Angeles highway, freeway <laughs> on the front of the book. Um, it's hard to, to interview people when nobody's out. So I had to find some clever ways to do that. But um, I interviewed several hundred people and a hundred of their first person stories are in the book. That's amazing. And I didn't know I was reading initially the, the forward and you had no idea that this was going to turn into a book. No, no, no. It, it wasn't supposed to be a book. And when I was out on the road and people said, oh, this is a book. And I said, no, 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 no. It's just a project because I'm interested and I'm sharing it out, but I hope I can use this project to get a job because that was the idea is to get a job in December, 2020. But then people started saying, but this is history. You're gathering history. That's it. It's just going to go on a website. And then all of a sudden I realized, oh, wow, what I'm doing is different than what I thought I'm doing. That was doing. And so I sent one email to UNC press over Christmas. And I said, is this a book? And they said, yeah, Actually, it is. And so that's what's coming out on March 14th in hard copy. That is so exciting. It's such an amazing story because it's really hard to find a publisher or someone who's written five books, some with major publishers, some self-published, but it's such a great story. And it's also such a great example of what I tell to midlife women all the time. You got to put your foot on the gas. Like you have no idea what's going to happen, but if you stay frozen in fear, if you do the duck and covers, which I think for, for most women I meet, it's like duck under the covers with Lay's potato chips and Netflix you know, and we, we lean into the alcohol, the shopping, you know, the food, all of those things, because we're so scared and we're so stuck. But if you yeah. can just, like you said, well, it made sense. I just got in the motorhome and then I started talking to people and here I am with this book coming out that I'm sure you're getting a ton of press about it. It's going to do great. Well, thank you. I mean, I think that I told them I really didn't want to have my own story in the book, although they forced me to. So it's the last story because I just really wanted to be the person who just offers them up. And, and some people say, well, what are your big takeaways from the pandemic? And, and I, and, and UNC press wanted me to do that too. And I'm like, that's not me. Like my, what I want to do is just offer up the hundred stories so that everybody can take what they need to take from the book. And what I'm hearing from people and from book clubs is, Number one, the book clubs are having so much fun because they're talking about when they're wiping down the mail or what it was like to be stuck at home. And then these lovely moments, like we had some campfires outside or we took these lovely walks or I decided to do this differently. And so people are telling me that it's healing and it's helping them process what we all went through. And parts of the country went through this very, very differently. And, um, and that's really eye-opening as well. Yeah. What were some of the the standout stories and instances? I know we all remember those kind of things. Like for me, I think it was the um, just how quiet it was. Like I, my, I was in an apartment, you know, post-divorce, uh, close to a, a you know, pretty busy highway. And it was like, there was all of this peace and all of these animals and people were suddenly kind of nicer. It was so slow down. There was a little loveliness to it. But what are some of the the highlights of the stories that you share in the book, Who We Are Now? Well, first of all, I wanted to say that Bonnie Marcus at Forbes, she went ahead and, and published an article today about the book, but also about two stories in the book, Christina Wong and Gabrielle Fitzgerald. So if anybody's interested in hearing Gabrielle's and Christina's stories, and they're amazing, uh, go ahead and go to Forbes and just Google my name and you'll find it. So, that's, so I'm going to put that there, but those you should go check those out. But this is my favorite story. I think we went from the blind grind to the pandemic pause and that and that during the pandemic pause, we all really started thinking about each other. I mean, I think everybody started thinking about each other. And I think it started when we saw the people in Spain uh, on their balconies, you know, hitting pots and pans and singing and 
um, we kind of all just looked up a little bit. And my favorite story about that is I was between Marfa and Alpine, Texas in January, 2021. And I guess it was early February. And I was roadside because I had low tires. And this gentleman had a pickup truck with a generator. And he said, I'll blow them up for you. His name was Calvin. And he was a rancher. And we were talking, he was asking about what I was finding. And he said, you know, my life's been pretty good. In fact, things have been, actually been better this year. He said, but I just can't shake thinking about the restaurant owner in New York City. Like, how's, how's, how are they doing? And I said, well, you know, as a matter of fact, Calvin, I just spoke to Dominic, who's got an Italian restaurant in Manhattan three days ago by Zoom. And he is taking a financial bath because he still can't have people eating inside of his restaurant. And he is mad as a hornet, right? Um, and, and, and then Calvin said, would you please tell him that a rancher in Texas is thinking about him? And so, of course, I called Dominic and I said, Dominic, a rancher in Texas is thinking about you. And he's <laughs> like, no way. But, but that's what I found is almost after every interview, the hundreds of interviews I did, people would say, how are other people doing out there? Like, can you, can you tell me like, how people are doing? We, we, we all wanted to know. And I think, you know, here we are in March, 2023, three years later. And I think for, if we're not back to the blind grind, it seems like we're very close to it. Um, so that, that beautiful period where we're each spending a little bit of time each week, just thinking about each other, you know, hopefully that still sticks with us. Um, because I think it was a beautiful part of, uh, who we are when we think about other people. Yeah, that's a beautiful story. And it really is true that, that we all are connected and that the internet has made us even more connected. Like I feel so connected to you, even though we've never met and I've seen these right. beautiful pictures. I feel like I know you <laughs> and we can see all of these stories of people all over the world. And that just how we really do care. And when we care about other people, we, it, it lights something up in ourselves like human beings are naturally altruistic. We like to care and, and nurture and and support each other. Mm -hmm. That's, that is so true. So I want to get back to a little bit to your story, because I think it's so, you know, we're about the same age and it's so relevant for midlife women. What did you do when you were frozen with fear? What did you do when you were like, oh my God, I don't know where I'm going to live. And oh my God, where am I going to get money? And nobody wants to hire me. And I can't believe this. I'm, you know, 57 years old and unemployable, but, I've, but I'm a lawyer and I have all of these skills and abilities. What the, you know, what, what, what did you do to go from that place of just like, I just want to give up. This is exhausting. I can't do this. And during all of the pandemic, I know, I don't know how, how close to then you were divorced as well, but how did you get over that, that frozen from fearness? Um, well, I think it was a gradual process when I started to realize I was having a hard time getting a job and I needed to reorient my thinking. I got out a super huge, actually, I went to the thrift shop, got a super huge whiteboard and I wrote limitless on the top, just <laughs> limitless. And I wrote down things I was enjoyed doing and things I was good at and places I wanted to go and dreams I had. And I didn't judge any of them. I just threw them up there. And it sat there like that for several weeks and I'd walk by it. I'd look at it and I'd think. And so that was, I think the beginning of the germination. I love that book who moved my cheese. I recognized that my cheese might be getting moved and that I would need to think about the maze that's out there and where else I was going to have to go to get the cheese. So that was the first part. And then the second part was that concrete moment of, okay, you can't live in your house anymore where you're going to live. And that was the motorhome. And then the realization that I couldn't live in just one place where I'd wake up every morning terrified. I had to do a run forest run thing. Um, and then the humans of New York piece. But still, even though I had all that together in the early part of August, when I took my daughter to Hilton Head right before I took her to college, I'm sitting out in the beautiful day, sunny at the beach, feet in the water. And I thought to myself, I don't care if I live another day. Now, I wasn't going to do anything about it but I was pretty certain that the rest of my life was going to be gray, that I was just going to get a job that was going to pay an income and that the best part of my life was over, which was raising my kids and that I was done. And I was just going to live as a shell of a person for my kids and my parents. So I guess you could say that was the nadir, right? Yeah. Um, and, um, 
But then since I had already said I was going to get in the motorhome and start going, that action is the antidote to fear that really kicked in. And though, I think this is really the kicker. I wasn't thinking about myself. Every day when I woke up, I was thinking, who can I meet today? Oh my gosh, that story I heard yesterday. Oh, what's this person going to say? And, and so I thought about everybody else except myself during all those months, all those 12,000 miles. And I think that really saved me because um, I don't know. It just flowed. And um, I know I'm, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't have anything to go with that because this is the first time I've said that. <laughs> yeah. And I so, you know, just as a compassion, I so appreciate you sharing the vulnerability. And for people who are listening, because I know a lot of women are at this place where, um, you know, the kids have left and they're feeling like that was my role, that was my job. And then you had divorce. Okay. Now my husband's left. And now my job's left and now I don't even have a house. Like, who am I without <laughs> all of this identity fixtures in my right. life? You know, who we are now, who we are now and divorced alone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still standing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah. On my motorhome, right. But but, but in all seriousness, I think one of the keys was, and I didn't realize, realize I had done this until somebody said it, not about me, but as a principle, whenever there is scarcity, there is also abundance. And what I've realized in retrospect that I did was the scarcity was I didn't have a job. The abundance was time. I had so much time. It was uncomfortable. I had so much time. It was embarrassing. And I went ahead and used that time, leaned into that time and created something that got me either back on track or on a different path that I'm enjoying just as much, if not more. So, um, and my father, and I, and I won't go into right now, but my father used that same principle to save the astronauts on Apollo 13. So I know that it works from a scientific point of view. It also works from a life point of view. Whenever there is scarcity, pause. Don't focus on the scarcity. Say to yourself, what do I have in abundance? Yeah, and that's just such an amazing example of law of attraction, right? Like getting a whiteboard and just going limitless, looking at all, because we always have so much. There's always an abundance of trees, an abundance of air, an abundance of water, and an abundance of love, and an abundance of connection. And I had no idea because I look at you and it's, it's interesting with Instagram. Again, it's that, you know, that the shadow side, the good side, because we're all like, looking like how great we are. Like even when I'm, you know, I'm getting radiation treatment with breast cancer and I'm like <laughs> dancing around in my shiny shoes. Like, yes, I'm getting radiated, but you know, but then we're also showing the vulnerability, but you know, it didn't, it, you looked like, I mean, I've always seen you as just this amazing, fun, superwoman. So I appreciate you sharing that you had this moment where you were just like, I've absolutely no idea. I've hit rock bottom and I don't know what's going on, but you got in action. Like you took major steps. You got in your RV, you know, you got that whiteboard, you remembered your dad. And it sounds like you also really um, drew on a lot of your skills and experiences. Tell us a little bit about how, you know, I think that's a big piece too. When you're looking to rock your midlife, you have to sort of excavate and say, okay, what did I love to do as a kid? What was I really good at? What do people tell me that I'm awesome at? Maybe I like make the best chocolate chip cookies in the world, or I have a beautiful singing voice, or I'm always that person who can people can listen to. So how did you use your previous skills and abilities to help you dig yourself out of the hole and start to really be on that um, upward trajectory to where you are now? So I completely agree with you. And I think that's one of the neatest things about getting older is we realize how many life experiences and skills we have at our disposal. So one of the things predated my life, which is that I'm actually a third generation full-time motorhomer. My grandfather, when he lost his job in 1933, moved he and his grandmother into a camper trailer for three years. And then they kept it after they got the house. And my mom grew up going to campgrounds. And then when I was two years old, my parents got a camper and they full-timed uh, when they retired for seven years. And that's when I road schooled my kids. So I had this comfort in the motorhome, this, 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 and, and, and ease of meeting people I didn't know. Cause when you're a kid growing up, going to campgrounds all the time, you're meeting new people all the time. So I drew on that. Number two, being a lawyer, 
Um, I drew on the fact that what I used to get put on, the cases I got put on a lot were the ones that required interview skills. Um, and so I drew on my interview skills because they kept saying to me, how did you get them to tell you that? Like, I don't know. I just, you know, asked a question, shrugged my shoulders, smiled, and it happened. Um, and so, um, so I drew on that. And then uh, I do public relations, uh, which is actually just a different form of law in that you're just still trying to persuade somebody or explain yourself to somebody. Um, and so I knew how to uh, connect with a broader audience. Um, and I had done a website for nonprofits, but my friend Charlotte White put together my amazing website. But it was my, all those skills and my time, you know, being on a volunteer for nonprofits and everything over the years, it just all came together. Beautiful. And, it, you know, I think the amazing thing for me as I hear your story is that you are so on your path and so in flow right now. I mean, it sounds like your book is getting amazing publicity as it's just hit. And, you know, <laughs> if you're listening, you need inspiration. If you are at rock bottom, here are the lessons, you know, get that whiteboard, write limitless on the top, take a look at all the skills and abilities that you have, get support, connect with other people and, you know, bring in some of that law of attraction stuff where you, you know, believe that there's more. And I think every single midlife woman who stands up and reinvents herself, we are all giving each other permission to shine. That's what I love about this space is nobody's competing. Although yeah. I do have RV envy. I do want to do that, but, um, you know, we're all just lifting each other up. So I so appreciate you sharing your story. The book again is who we are now. It's coming out on March 14th. So this is happening. You're watching, you're listening to this on the 15th or after get the book. It's amazing. I've started to read it really fun stories. We're going to take a little break and we'll be back a little bit more with Michelle. And then we're going to also talk with the amazing Jane Olson, who has worked for decades to promote peace and justice through her international human rights and work and humanitarian organizations. And she's going to have, I'm sure, a lot of tales to tell, which are also going to help you to rock your midlife. Take a little break and we'll catch you on the other side. Hey, everybody, Dr. Ellen here, the Midlife Whisper. Welcome back. I hope you are enjoying this conversation as much as I am. Hey, if you <laughs> want to get in touch with me, check out the midlifewhisper.com. That's the midlifewhisper.com. I have a new Rock Your Midlife community just for you where you can get coaching and support and attend live workshops and meetings to meet other amazing midlife women and actually get coaching from me. And also just get all the support and inspiration you need to really figure out what's next for you. So, Back to speaking with absolutely amazing women who are rocking it. I want you to meet Jane Olson, and she has worked as a volunteer for many decades to promote peace and justice through international human rights and humanitarian organizations. She chaired the International Board of Trustees of Human Rights Watch from 2004 to 2010 and served as a co-chair of the Women's Refugee Commission as a founding board member chair of Landmine Survivors Network, Survivors Corps. She gave leadership to LSN for 12 years. She is the author of an amazing new book called World Citizen, detailing her travels across the world with humanitarian and human rights organizations in war-torn and troubled countries. It's a truly amazing, beautifully written book. She has been to Nicaragua, Ukraine, Cuba, Serbia, Vietnam, North Ireland, and so many more. You, I know you will be inspired by her and touched by her stories. Welcome to Rock Your Midlife. Such an honor to have you here, Jane. Thank you, Ellen. And I want to say it's quite brilliant that you paired me with Michelle because we both have been taking journeys, yours around the country, mine around the world. And um, our main gifts are what we learned from the people we met. Mm -hmm. And that's really that was the focus of my book too. You know, everywhere I met, it's always about the people and people living in very devastating conditions. Um, but I wanna ask you, were there ever any um, incidents where you really feared for your safety? And I'm talking especially about people that you've met, encountered. Never. Not a single time. Now, if you want to take me all the way back to when I my road schooled my kids when they were four and seven, our very, our very first night, just the three of us out on the road, we were out in Missouri and we were at a, a state park that had nobody there and it was dark, dark, dark and there was no campground host and there was a beat up old sedan that was driving around and I just did not feel comfortable. And so I said to the kids, we're gonna drive back to that Walmart 
and we're going to stay there. And we did. And so I was grateful that Walmart was there, but I've, I've never ever, other than that one time where it's just like a little bit on the back of my neck, I've never felt any fear and never had any, any incidents. Well, good for you for listening to your knowing, <laughs> following your knowing. <laughs> but certainly dealing with so much fear in terms of like life circumstances too. And I think the universe is always giving us lessons to grow and face our fears right. and, and do what we need to do. And usually we find that when we face our fears, everything we want is on the other side of fear. Right. So speaking of fears, so I have the same question for you, Jane. I know reading, you know, I've started to read your brilliant book and your writing is beautiful. Did you actually, did you study writing? At all? Yes, at any point yes, I, I, I did. Yes, creative writing and journalism. I was, was it, trained it, as an investigative reporter and photographer. So you see there are more than 200 photos, my own photos in the book. Yeah, it is. It's, it's beautiful yeah. just seeing people and connecting with people and seeing that we really are one. So tell us, a, you know, about a couple of your, before you sort of dig into your why and how you got there, I'm just giving you the same question that you asked Michelle. Tell us about one or two incidents where you were truly in danger and, and how did you deal with that fear? Well, I put one chapter in the book that um, is called A Rude Awakening. And it's, a, it's an incident that I never told anybody about. I didn't tell my husband other than the woman I was traveling with. I told no one. And it was uh, during the ethnic cleansing war in Bosnia Herzegovina in the in the former Yugoslavia. It was late in the war. I'd already taken about six different trips to um, the former Yugoslavia with different international humanitarian organizations. I became rather obsessed with that war because it was a war focused on civilians and because it was so brutal, especially to women. Rape was being used as a weapon of war. A strategy of war actually and in this particular case it was late in the war and most of the remaining um, Bosnian um, ethnic Bosnians who were still in the country had been pushed into the center of the country and it was uh, you know towns that you know, villages that used to have a few thousand people now had 50 and 60,000 internally displaced people you know a refugee is when you're forced to cross the border of your country but if you're forced out of your home and community, but stay within your country. It's called IDP or internally displaced. And we were there um, meeting with women and, um, and girls who had just horrendous stories to tell of rape. Um, also a hospital that had been abandoned uh, during shelling, a hospital for mentally and physically um, disabled children and adults. Shelling had had started around them and all the doctors and the nurses fled and abandoned this hospital. And um, we were there uh, touring that facility and, and, and talking to some of the patients and finding out what had happened. So I was absolutely exhausted. We were staying in this uh, really crummy um, former, I guess it was a former resort, <laughs> um, very modest, accommodations and in the middle of the night and I, I was with the, my travel companion who's a woman about 10 years younger than I who was staff for the organization we were traveling with and I was a volunteer but I really had had much more experience than she and in the middle of the night there was a knock on our door and uh, we were in twin beds my bed was right next to the door so I jumped up and opened the door and here were uh, two men uh, very um you know, sort of dirty and whiskered and um, exhausted looking men. Um, one of them spoke a bit of English and he said, um, we want you to come with us. Uh, I have evidence of, of torture and, and rape um, that's been perpetrated against our people. Oops. At the time I was on the board of Human Rights Watch. And so of course my ears perked up evidence, evidence uh, so I told my companion to get up and we threw on jeans and parkas. It was um, late fall and very cold. And we went out <laughs> very stupidly, went out and got in this car. Um, there were four men all together and we crowded into the back seat and they drove us, I don't know, maybe 20 minutes outside of this um, refugee center 
to a, a small house where um, I guess it was on a farm. I couldn't really see it was so dark where there were other men and it just smelled horribly of cigarettes and body odor and so on. And um, we were ushered in. It was very dimly lit, but there was a man sitting at a small table, like a cardboard side, a card, card table, holding card table sort of place. And in front of him, he had all these pictures of torture, pictures that had been drawn of how, um, in this case, the Serbs were the primary perpetrators. The Serbs had tortured Bosnian civilians. And he said um, he wanted us to know about this and he wanted me to go back and, and, and tell um, the president of the United States what was happening. Um, I was fascinated by the, the drawings. First of all, they were very well done. The person who did it was an artist of sorts, but the pictures were showing like a baby being thrown down a well, another small child being thrown into a bonfire, a picture of a man who's had um, each of his legs tied to a different tractor and the tractor was driving off in a V formation, splitting him. I mean, horrendous things. And I suddenly realized that um, I knew that these men were Bosnians and they were resistance fighters, Bosniak resistance fighters. But I looked at my travel companion, Angela, and I realized that it, we were, had no idea where we were, how stupid it was to be there. Um, I asked them if I could take the drawings and leave and they said, no, you can't. Um, and I hadn't brought, you know, th this was before cell phones, cameras and all that. I hadn't brought my camera um, and, I, and I just uh, realized we had to get out of there. So I said, I promise I will go back and I will report this. I've memorized every detail. Please take us back to the hotel. And they did. And um, the sad part of this is, um, I mean, I felt, I felt that I had, um, I'd been completely irresponsible and ridiculous to even open the door in the first place, but I'd put myself and my companion in danger and I never reported what I'd seen. Um, Human Rights Watch could not have used it because I didn't have any names of evidence. I didn't have names of the perpetrators or the victims or dates or any um, any evidence that could have been used. Um, so I, I never told it. But when I was writing my book, um, I had finished the chapter of the incident that preceded this. And I got up at 5.30 in the morning, the next morning, and I went to my computer and all that chapter just came out of me. I felt like I had, it had to be told, but it had to be told in a really honest way. You know, this is an example of something really stupid that I did. It ended well, but um, I mean, kind of as a warning to others, you know, yeah, war zones okay. are not for tourism. <laughs> No, I'm glad to, gosh, that's a horrific story on so many levels. And I'm glad that you were okay. And, and I guess my next question is like, how did you get into this career as a humanitarian in earnest in your forties? How does this come back? It's not like someone <laughs> always wakes up one day and says, well, I'm, I'm going to go out there to some of the scariest places on the planet and see what I can do to try to alleviate some of the suffering. How did this come about? Well, one step at a time is the real answer. And it, it kind of came to me. I've always been a volunteer. In fact, I was uh, elected into a um, quite a prestigious women's professional um, organization as the only person who, who never had a paid job, really. I was a professional volunteer, but had a lot of leadership positions. Um, and I, um, I, I got involved during, as I said, I was trained as an investigative reporter and photographer. So I've always been interested in the news, an avid reader of newspapers, always been interested in, in world events. And I got engaged um, when I was quite young in the nuclear arms race issue during the Cold War. I really rather focused on the Cold War between the US and the Soviet Union. And um, in the early um, 1980s, we had a massive influx of, of immigrants coming from 
Central America, much like happened during the Trump administration, caravans of people coming, especially from Nicaragua and El Salvador, because of a war being fought there. And what was happening is, you know, the US and the Soviet Union had so many nuclear weapons, we couldn't engage each other in war. And I hope to goodness we don't do it now uh, because we could eliminate all life on earth. So we had proxy wars in third world countries mm. where we, we supported what were truly fascist dictators and the Russian supported communist uh, revolutionaries. And that's what was happening in Nicaragua and El Salvador. So I was invited to go there with um, a group of three other people from Los Angeles on a two-week investigation of, of really witnessing, um, meeting people all over the country, but looking into whether what our government was claiming about the, the threat to US democracy being posed by these wars or whether, um, you know, whether there was any truth in that, whether it was an exaggeration. And of course we found the latter was a great exaggeration, but I met so many amazing people. So listening to your stories, Michelle, makes me realize that it is always about the people. One of them I met was a young woman who, um, I, I, I wanted to see what kinds of um, programs they had, social adjustments, uh, programs that they had for the very poor people who had been displaced from their homes during the war and so on. And we went into a, a center where um, women were being taught to use um, sewing machines. They, they were being taught a trade. And I was told that all these women in this program were former prostitutes. And uh, that they realized that that was a very dangerous profession and and they were trying to improve their lives and so I, I connected with one young woman um who, who had her children there and it, I mean she just stayed in my in my heart and I you see victims of war and so often it is the women and children that that are suffering the most but um then what happened is as the Soviet Union um broke up Ukraine was the first republic in the former Soviet Union to start um, demonstrating for peace. And I was invited to go on a peace mission where 100 Americans were invited to go on a boat in Kiev, from Kiev to Odessa on the Dnieper River, with 100 uh, Soviet citizens, mostly Ukrainians, some Russians also, and clearly KGB. And uh, that was in 1989. And we went, we went and all these cities that you're seeing now, Zaporosia and Dnipro and all the cities that we're seeing now being bombed and shelled by the Russian aggression. And they had been completely closed off to all outsiders because that was a major center for military weapon production and also nuclear missile production. So people who lived in these cities were not able to leave and come back unless they were um, involved with the military or government or something. And no outsiders, even Soviet citizens were allowed to visit them. So we went on this boat, stopped at every port and we were the first um, foreigners that they'd ever seen. Wow. And um, it, it, I just so love the Ukrainian people. I mean, it was a festival everywhere we went. And I, as a, as a journalist, I always carried a journal and a um, camera and I took pictures of everyone and I had them write their names in Cyrillic and then I identified what pictures they were and when I came back I wrote letters to each of them and sent them these photos and it turned out that I was invited to return the next year and um, when we got into Kiev there were tens of thousands of people in Independence Square um, for a ceremony in which they tore down the hammer and sickle flag of the Soviet Union and raised that beautiful yellow and blue flag for the first time. And I happened to be wearing a dress of the same color. Um, and so, I mean, it's just total coincidence. And I had my oldest daughter with me and we were pushed forward and given flags and we were up on the platform, you know, <laughs> dancing and waving our flags. 
it was the first moment that they brought out those flags. And that was in wow. August of 1990. So I am watching this um, war against the Ukrainians with great sadness because I'm hearing from many people. You know, they're writing me about their experiences and especially the, the, the men I met who were teenage boys at the time are now guarding their cities and wearing camouflage and going out at night, even the, you know, the professional men who've never held a gun before. Yeah, I can imagine that it's very hard. And I was, you know, I'm starting to read the book. I guess that what, what, you know, is in my mind is how do you keep your hope? You know, when, or how do you not get overwhelmed? And that is something that happens to me so often is I see all the suffering in the world. You know, I read the paper every day and I look at everything that's going on and they just feel like our people who are listening, I feel like what can each one of us individually do? How do you keep that light and that hope and faith that what you're doing is making a difference and also not let the suffering that you're encountering overwhelm you? Well, I think... Um... It would be a great disservice to the people that you're visiting if you, you know, broke down. Certainly, I got tearful. I had my heart broken many times. Uh, there was a lot of sadness. But the joy and the hope is in the encounters with people. You know, as Michelle was saying, you know, you meet people who have lost everything. I mean, so many of these women who'd been held in rape camps in the former Yugoslavia, um, they had suffered just such grievous pain in every kind of level of pain, physical, emotional, and, and uh, mental. And yet um, they, they reached out so joyfully and were so glad to have someone who was willing to just sit and be with them, just to listen. And that's what gives me the hope. I saw so much resilience resilience of the human body and resilience of the human spirit and that's what gives me hope and everywhere I went I saw especially women because 80 percent of refugees are women and children women forming communities and there was one uh, incident in the former Yugoslavia where um, there, there was a community that um, there were several thousand women and girls who'd been held in rape camps and been just tortured and abused horribly, who were trucked in, rescued and trucked into this one center. And I met um, a woman named Mincy, who was, she had seen her father and her husband killed. She had a young son with her, her young son, since he hadn't spoken a word since his father had died, she'd been held for weeks and weeks and um, gang raped all during the day and night. I mean, just horrendous, horrendous story. But she said she had to stay alive for her son. And then she realized that she at least had a son and had had a husband, but she saw all of these hundreds of teenage girls coming in to this uh, safe zone and realized that they had been much more, um, um, they were much more devastated than she because they had really lost everything and they had no family and she reached out to help them and to um, get other older women to help these teenage girls. Yeah, so it is through that, you know, there is a healing power to being able to right. know that we can make a difference and we can help other people. We only have a few moments left and I know Michelle's been listening intently and she's got a question for you. So when I give, give her an opportunity, Michelle, do you have a question for Jane? Jane, I'm, I'm, I'm really intrigued. And one of the things that I had thought when I headed out in 2020 is that I was going to find people being despondent and people who were depressed and the people who lost somebody or, or the people who infected somebody. Um, and, and, but what I found was the opposite. I found what I think is pluck, spirit and indetermined courage and I'm wondering if that word resonates with you about what you found. Absolutely. Pluck is a very good word, but I'm going to use the words of Mincy. She said, we are survivors. We refuse to be victims. Mm -hmm. And she formed a society of women survivors of war crimes. And 800 women had joined, women and girls. And they had to pledge 
that they would never hate or seek revenge, that they would forgive those who captured them, who tortured them because they realized they were being ordered to rape and torture. And she said, only if we see ourselves as survivors and refuse to hate, can we break the silence of this uh, chain of violence that our, our country has gone through for so long. And there is a huge difference between seeing yourself as a survivor or a victim. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's huge that, that, you know, in the darkness, it's like the human spirit can shine brightly. And I think that's something that, you know, part of what drives me. And I think so many of we midlife women is, you know, because the Dalai Lama says the Western women are going to say, we're going to save the world. Yes. Because the world is going to, you know, we haven't said it's going to hell in a hell basket, but there's certainly lots of right. really uh, devastating places. And people like yourself and Michelle, both of you are just such beautiful lights to, you know, trying to make a difference and finding that connection with other humans and realizing that we're really all in this together. Right. right. It's always the human story. And we are all one. I think we are energetically connected. Yeah, and we don't have too much time to talk about it, but you do mention too that it seems like this Generation Z is really fired up. And I've got, you know, I've got a 21 year, 25 year old, and especially my 25 year old, they are very much um, upset about the status of the world, but they're trying to do their thing. I don't know if that's your your situation with your kids. Do you find your kids are are full of kind of hope that things are going to get better? Mine are mine are feeling a lot of anxiety and fear, um, and that is creating anger and a desire to do something. Yeah, it's coming from that anger place. And then we, we have to, we're, we're almost out of time. So I'm just, I want to make sure that I give both of you guys an opportunity for people to reach you. Michelle, it's who we are now is the book and where, what's your website? Just go ahead and go to whowearenow.us. Pretty simple. You can find everything okay. there. Whowearenow.us, read the book. It is fabulous. And then your book, Jane, where can people get your book? World Citizen, also amazing, amazing book. And it's worldcitizenthebook.com. Okay. And I have just released the digital and we'll be posting the audible book uh, in another week or two, which I, which I narrated. But I, I want to tell you quickly that I am pushing the definition of midlife. Um, I am That's actually okay. You're, 80 you're years of... old and I have eight grandsons who are all college age. All right. Well, it's beautiful. You're welcome <laughs> to the club. So ladies, thank you so much. Everyone, thank you for listening. Check out their books and we'll see you next week. Thanks for watching. Midlife can be challenging. You may be sandwiched between growing kids and aging parents, dealing with menopause or a health issue and trying to find work-life balance. Or maybe your life looks good on the outside, but inside you're feeling stuck and wondering how to get your confidence, energy, and joy back. Hi, I'm Dr. Ellen, the Midlife Whisperer, and I hear you and I've got you. Think of me as the one-stop shop for all your midlife needs. I'm a psychologist, registered dietitian, nutritionist, board-certified health and wellness coach, and mindful self-compassion teacher. I'm also an author and podcast host with over 30 years of experience empowering midlife women. I provide inspiration and wisdom to help you transform your health, your mindset, your relationships, and your life so you can rock midlife.